Why are police photographing our license plate? What are we doing for veterans returning home damaged physically and mentally, suffering from depression, homelessness, and suicide? Why did the Supreme Court deposit corporate money into our electoral process? Should we redefine middle class as working poor? Or is it just another Wall Street merger? What's really behind new voter picture ID laws in certain states? Why aren't NBC, ABC, CBS, and Fox asking these questions? Welcome to the Reasonable Voice radio show. I'm your host, Marcello Rolando, the Reasonable Voice. The mission of the Reasonable Voice is to connect the dots between politics and finance, the need for better and more affordable education, our humanity, world peace, and, of course, the arts, which we then gladly provide our listeners, the voting public, as informative food for thought to provoke their self-determination and appetite for equal economic opportunity and justice for all without truth decay. The Reasonable Voices are advocates prioritizing education, preserving our history, leading by example for a peaceful and prosperous world by evoking and embracing both creative artists and political unity as solutions to our challenges. Good afternoon and welcome to the Reasonable Voices talk radio show. My guest today is Virginia State Senator George Lincoln Barker. Senator Barker uh, has been on my show at least, I think, once before. It's been a good while. He's a member of the Democratic Party in Virginia, of course. He's currently serving in the Senate of Virginia, representing the 39th District. Good afternoon. How are you, Senator? I'm doing great. How are I'm great, thank you. I just want to make certain I don't miss a part of your 39th district in the Commonwealth of Virginia. It includes parts of Fairfax and Prince William counties, plus a little bit of the city of Alexandria. Is that right? Yes, that is. And you were first elected in November 2007 and are still serving. You've been reelected since. You must be doing a great job. Everybody likes you, it seems to me. Uh, that's all I ever hear. <laughs> I would say everybody likes it. But, uh, but we, we, we won three elections today. I got reelected again in November of this year, just last month. That's and right. So uh, we'll start my third term in January. Wonderful. Well, congratulations, and thanks again for being Thank on you. the show. I know that um, in the General Assembly, and we're going to talk a little bit, too, also, because not everybody knows the differences between the three branches of the federal government are structured as opposed to some states and most specifically the Commonwealth of Virginia with the General Assembly. But we'll get to that in a minute because I know you know that. But I do want to say you've served on uh, in the General Assembly on committees for education and health, two of my favorite topics, general laws and technology. That sounds interesting. And rehabilitation and social services. So we've got a lot to talk about, so why don't I give uh, Senator Barker a chance to do that. First of all, if you wouldn't mind giving us a bit of a civics lesson, uh, Senator, on the federal level, of course, we have the executive, the president, the White House, and that's sort of comparable to Governor McAuliffe. But um, the Congress and its two houses, even though you have two houses in the General Assembly, there's a little there are differences in how long you're in session. Can you talk to us about that and how that works? 
Sure. Um, we have uh, two houses within the legislature, within what's called the General Assembly of Virginia. Mm-hmm. Uh, the lower house is called the House of Delegates, and there are 100 members of that body, uh, much smaller than the 435 at the federal level. Mm-hmm. And each of them represents a population of about 80,000. In the Senate, there are 40 uh, senators. Uh, each of us represents a district with about um, 200,000, and the uh, district lines are drawn based upon, pop- upon population, which differs from the U.S. Senate, where each state gets two senators, uh, and only two senators, regardless of how small or large that state is. We operate only, full-time only, a month and a half to two months out of the year. This coming year will be the two-month session. We start on January 13, and we're to be done by uh, March 12. And then in the odd number of years, such as what we had last uh, winter, uh, we went in on January 14th, and we were actually out before the end of February. So we have a lot that we have to do and a short period of time to get get it done. The theory being partly that we want to maintain a citizen legislature so that uh, uh, most of us have other jobs and obligations outside of our uh, legislative careers. And uh, we need those because you don't get paid much being a legislator. So. <laughs> uh, but, uh, you know, it, does, it helps you stay in touch with what, uh, what the real world is and the issues that people are facing within the lo- your local jurisdictions. You know, I've often heard and, and uh, I subscribe to the belief that the closer the elected official is to the people, the better he represents their needs and desires, even if they don't always know what they are themselves. And so, and also another contrast, first of all, as you say, you're one of only 40 senators in the Senate of the Commonwealth of Virginia in the General Assembly. And secondly, you gentlemen and ladies admit to short uh, t- terms and actual uh, full-time working, but you do a lot more than they do in the federal uh, level, I think, and they don't always admit how often they're away. It's it's rare that the U.S. Congress uh, works even a three-day week, but we'll we'll let that go for the moment. How is the economy, particularly in the Commonwealth of Virginia, uh, coming back? I mean, we've had a change of... Uh, of governors since you have, uh, were elected the first time, I believe, and um, also, you know, we've had sequester, uh, sequestration, and I know transportation budget has felt a pinch, uh, even without the um, Western Bypass going through, uh, being approved ultimately in the Charlottesville, Virginia area. Anyway, there's a question in there, and I guess the first is to talk about how are Virginia residents, such as you and me, for that matter, how are how is the economy looking for us and those who are not perhaps in the same pay range? How's that? Sure. Yeah, that's uh, a very good question because part of our major focus is the uh, is the economy in Virginia and what we need to do to make sure that everybody has opportunities for good jobs, uh, good, well-paying jobs. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's clearly the focus of the governor as well, so it's not just the General Assembly who's uh, honed in on that, but the governor is very committed to, to uh, addressing the issues that we have. Mm-hmm. The, you know, Virginia, over you know, more than a half a century, has made tremendous progress. You know, we used to be a pretty backward southern state with low incomes uh, and one of the poorer states in the country. If you look back to the period of time, we're you know, close to World War II. Mm-hmm. But we have dramatically increased, and we're now in the top 10 in terms of media incomes and all kinds of economic indicators. Uh, so we've made phenomenal progress. Generally, we have well outperformed the rest of the country over the last 60 or so years. But uh, we did have a, a major hit mm-hmm. uh, just in fiscal 2014, and that was when federal sequestration hit. Yes. And there was substantial reduction in federal funding for uh, the Defense Department in particular, 
half of the, the sequestration cut is the Defense Department and uh, the military programs and those types of things, and that disproportionately hit Virginia. And so we had a, a 12-month period in fiscal 2014 where uh, 47 of the 50 states nationally, the economy was heading up, and in three, three states it was heading down. Mm. We were one of those three states. So we had to make some major adjustments and uh, make some cuts to our uh, spending and everything because the revenues uh, were reduced during that period of time. What is uh, particularly encouraging is that we have bounced back very strongly. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're still not all the way back to where we were uh, related to every other state uh, before 2014 hit, but it's amazing how quickly we've come back up. And we had uh, last year our uh, general fund revenues went more than 8%. Uh, far exceeding what was happening at the national level or almost any other state across the country. Mm. Uh, so it was a very a strong uh, indicator that the underpinnings of the Virginia economy are very solid. Our unemployment rate now is 4.2%, uh, well below the national average, and uh, one of the very lowest east of the Mississippi. I think there are only two other states that are in roughly the same category that we are. Mm. Uh, and part of what we're doing now is to try to diversify our economy. Uh, because of the the impact of the federal government on Northern Virginia, yes. and even more so on Hampton Roads, more of the Hampton Roads economy is uh, dependent upon federal spending or directly yes. tied to it. Uh, those were were very difficult, but we have come back very strongly, and I think I'm making progress, and we're going to continue to pursue it. Excellent. I um, uh, you know, I've I've often well, I shouldn't say I've often. I had a, a, a very dear friend who was a Republican. Uh, but a great historian, and uh, we had many lunches and interesting conversations through the time period, coincidentally, that you've been serving in the uh, in the Senate of the Virginia's General Assembly. And he, uh, one of his first things he ever said to me in a conversation is, remember, Marcello, there are three Virginias. There's Northern Virginia, there's Southern Virginia, and there's West Virginia. <laughs> and I've never forgotten that. And, and of course, he didn't explain it because he wanted me to, to think about it and come up with my own um, thoughts about it. But I'm, I'm curious, what do you think about that statement? Do you have any thoughts one way or the other? Has it changed? Representing uh, the regional health planning agency to where I served, oh, yes. and across the state in the general, uh, uh, with the members of the general assembly, and so I was down in Richmond a lot. And you, there were a lot of negative comments made about Northern Virginia from uh, legislators from other parts of the state at various times. Yes. Uh, I think we have much more of a one Virginia uh, attitude and approach on things. We understand that there are strengths and weaknesses in all parts of the, of the Commonwealth. Uh, and we need to do what's best for everybody. So I think there's less regionalism in terms of how people approach things uh, than there used to be. And a good indication of that was the uh, uh, the transportation package that was passed in 2013. It was our first major transportation bill in 27 years. And we basically, our transportation funding uh, pool essentially broke. We we were not even repaving roads uh, that needed to have been repaved Mm -hmm. uh, 10 years earlier. Uh, and uh, it clearly had the, had the most impact in Northern Virginia and Hampton Roads, uh, where the, the greatest uh, transportation problems have been. But uh, what we ended up coming up with was a package that had some state funding increase that helped everybody across the Commonwealth, mm-hmm. and then regional packages for Northern Virginia and Hampton Roads that allowed us and Northern Virginia, as well as the people in Hampton Roads, to have a little higher taxes on uh, uh, certain items there, sales tax, it was a 6% rather than the 5.3% it is elsewhere. 
And what you have was a lot of legislators from more rural areas of the state voted for that, both Democrats and Republicans. Mm-hmm. Because what they said, as long as you're willing to take some of the burden solely on yourself and not looking to the rest of the state to support Hampton Roads in Northern Virginia, uh, we'll support it. And so even though it's not always easy for a legislator to say, I'm going to increase taxes, and I'm, uh, my region's not going to get as much benefit out of some other part of the state, because they saw the need statewide and it's, uh, how vital transportation improvements are to our economy, and that it's important to, that we each address uh, needs in all parts of the state get passed. Well, you know, I'm glad you you connected those two huge issues, the Virginia economy and and the need to improve transportation. Of course, on the federal level, we need infrastructure as well. But I happened to come back from New York City, lived in McLean, Virginia for a while when I first arrived. I still have a home there, but, um, but I'm in Charlottesville a great deal. And I'm just, I'm wondering about some of these programs. And one I wonder about yeah, is not in your district, but if I might just throw it out again, that that Western Bypass that seemed to have been being pushed so much by the former um, uh, Republican administration in Richmond, and as a as a news person uh, and anchor and producer and talk show host, it was all ablaze. I mean, so much battling back and forth, and and uh, the more I heard about it, the less I liked it, and. Fortunately, but you know, it wasn't just the government. I mean, uh, VDOT was involved heavily, obviously, and and then the the cemetery that was there all the time, even in the in the plat and the, and the plot for the for the uh, bypass. Suddenly, everyone discovered it, and then it became a political football. But I, I'm 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 just wondering what things, because it's never one thing, sort of. Um, threw some cold water down there in Virginia that made us tackle these transportation problems with the vigor you seem to have just described? Well, I think uh, part of what happened was that there was uh, a real commitment to try to address these issues. And, and, and the key to it was that Governor McDonald uh, did a very good job in going forward in 2013 of saying, we need, to, we need to do this. I think it was something that very few people thought would happen. Mm-hmm. Usually a governor gets a major initiative like that done in his second or third year, mm-hmm. not in his last year of his administration. Mm-hmm. Uh, by that point, also, he's sort of halfway out the door. Yes. And this particular time, I actually talked with Governor McDonald in December of 2012, and he asked me what various questions about what I thought that we could get in terms of Democratic support, and I gave him very few answers. I said, if you do X, Y, and Z, mm-hmm. I can count on uh, enough Democratic votes from doing A, B, and C to put together a package that, that both sides, I think, can support. The Speaker stepped forward on it, uh, Speaker Howell, and yes. he put the bill in on the House side. And uh, that type of leadership uh, you know, was extraordinarily helpful. And what we had was then we had, a, in the end, we had a bill that passed in the House of Delegates with a majority of the Democrats and a majority of the Republicans supporting it. Um, in the Senate, it was mostly Democrats supporting it, but mm-hmm. less Republicans. But we really had a, a very strong bipartisan effort. And I think the fact that um, Governor McDonald sort of stepped out up there out front mm-hmm. uh, helped get uh, pull the rest of us together. Previously, we passed a number of major transportation bills in the Senate, but they had not uh, passed in the House. But in 2013, with the governor and uh, Speaker Howell um, both in favor, we were able to be successful and get it done. Excellent. I, you know, it, it all comes back to United We Stand. You know, I just. Uh, yeah. We have just got to work together on so many issues. Mental health, which I do want to get to and probably in the next segment, 
traditionally, historically, uh, we have not always as a nation understood or dealt with the uh, issues of mental health, and and so we need to. But I'm going to come back to that in the second um in the second segment. Sure. But um, education, you know, two or three weeks ago, I actually had um, a, a radio conversation with um, the First Lady of Virginia, Dorothy McAuliffe, and she was talking about her involvement, her passion for No Kid Hungry, a Virginia campaign. And I, I think about that as I think about that kind of program as part of education. And I got the feeling she felt the same way because, uh, you know, with all the food programs and the things that she's working with, the various uh, organizations, national organizations that are working with the Virginia uh, No Kid um, Hungry campaign, it, she kept stressing the idea of having breakfast after the school bell rang so that it, the actual eating, the nourishment of the body, was part of the nourishment of the brain. And I thought, you know, that makes all the sense in the world. But can we touch on that but then go into your positions on education and what you have uh, been involved in to improve education in the Commonwealth? Um, sure. And uh, I think two things that are, are, are very important to understand – is if you've not dealt with uh, the issues such as hunger, but mm-hmm. it's not the only one, that negatively impacts students' ability to be able to concentrate and do well in school. Uh, we're we're falling down on the job, and we're in effect setting things up for failure rather than yes. success. Yes. Uh, if a kid's hungry, that kid is going to have a much more difficult time uh, concentrating and learning the things that he or she needs to. Uh, similarly, if the, there are other issues within the community or home that are impacting kids homeless, you know, those types of things, yes. that also creates major problems. And uh, we can't expect our schools to solve all those problems and to help those kids achieve just as well as the upper-income kids mm-hmm. if we haven't uh, you know, provided the support base for, for being able to do that. Uh, there's an article just recently in a, a small city uh, area just a little bit north of St. Louis, Missouri, where the... Uh, uh, superintendents done things like you know trying to deal with the homelessness and and the uh, food and clothing issues so the kids have a good opportunity up front. Mm-hmm. And the indications that uh, I've seen from what was reported anyway is that the academic achievement of the students has jumped dramatically yes. once they felt you know that their basic needs were, were taken care of. If you can't take care of the basic needs, you can't expect someone to necessarily succeed in education. Uh, overall, I think we are uh, still we're still seeing very good performances across the Commonwealth, uh, generally on rating in K-12 uh, uh, school systems, schools, schools across the state, uh, we're ranked in the top four nationally. Excellent. Um, so it's generally been us, Massachusetts, New York, and Maryland that have had the most highly rated schools. However, if we don't address some issues, we run the risk of slipping. And there's still some areas where we are not going as well as we could. Mm-hmm. You know, we have, our graduation rates are very good. So most kids, are, roughly 90% of kids are now graduating from high school, which is among the top uh, rates in the entire country. Our standardized test scores continue to go up, except for a couple of times when they've made the test harder. So we've actually made it harder, and within a couple of years, the students have figured it out mm-hmm. and learned more. So it's actually going well. The big problem, the big gap we have right now is the disparities that exist. And there are um, there are still uh, certain uh, racial and ethnic groups and certain categories of students 
such as lower-income students, uh, African-Americans as a whole, Hispanics as a whole, are not performing as well as the rest of the students. And even though there's been some increase in some of those categories, they really haven't narrowed that gap. One of the things that's encouraging is that the governor has proposed in the budget for the, that we will consider in January, February, March, uh, $50 million to be uh, provided to schools and school districts uh, that are doing, to do things targeted at these at-risk students. Mm-hmm. And if we do those types of things, I think we can uh, really help things improve. There have been a lot of cuts in K-12 education, in effect, over the last uh, eight years, seven, yes. eight years. You go back to fiscal year 2008, mm-hmm. uh, if we adjust for inflation, our per-pupil per spending is down about 15%. And what it's meant is some real uh, increases in class sizes. We're not providing funding, the state share of funding for a lot of the expenses that local school systems have. And we, our teacher salaries are extraordinarily low in fact, mm-hmm. compared to salaries of uh, similar, similarly educated and trained personnel. We're last in the, na- in the nation right now. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's, uh, you know, it's something that we should not be proud of. Um, and it's also creating problems in that we are seeing all across the Commonwealth the school systems not being able to fill teaching positions. In some schools, they end up with substitutes you know, the entire year. Mm-hmm. Uh, even in Fairfax County this year, for the first time ever, they had uh, open school in September with 200 vacant teacher positions and had to have uh, substitutes starting out the year uh, there until they could cr- recruit additional people. So we have uh, a long ways to go to catch up. What is great is that there's been pretty much a strong bipartisan uh, push to get mm-hmm. that done. Uh, the local governments across the state, uh, like through the Virginia Association of Counties, et cetera, I think that with Virginia Association of Counties, they unanimously uh, agreed that education should be the number one issue in the General Assembly this year because they're all seeing it in their localities. So we have a lot to catch up on, but we have a strong base, and as long as we move uh, aggressively this year and next year, uh, we will put ourselves in a better position to keep moving forward. And one of the things I hope we can do is get that funding for the at-risk kids to start to narrow the gaps uh, between the higher-income students and the lower-income students, those types of things. Excellent. I appreciate that in-depth answer, uh, uh, Senator Barker. Uh, uh, Senator Barker, Senator George Barker, is our guest today. We're going to take a break. Please don't go away. Stay with us. We have a lot more to talk about, and he's the one with the answer. Stay with us. And now... Another film rental discovery. Welcome to the Indie Film Minute. French director Luc Besson weaves ambitious thrillers within a pastiche of dark ambience. Leon the Professional uses this penchant to a rewarding degree, but what makes it special is the dangerous relationship between Jean Renault's Leon and young Matilda, played by 11-year-old Natalie Portman. Matilda is living in a seedy New York apartment when her family is murdered by a renegade DEA agent, played by Gary Oldman, at his most manic. Professional hitman Leon is her neighbor. Accustomed to seeing death, he wants no part of drama, not his own. But Matilda has survived the slaughter and turns to him, and Matilda will not be shunned. She wants to become a cleaner herself for revenge, and Leon can teach her. 
Leon the Professional is an engrossing thriller on so many levels, but the relationship of the lead characters makes it especially memorable. It bears saying that for American release, some troubling scenes were removed in deference to sensitive tastes. So, with assurances that the film does not go where some were afraid it might, for the full impact of this enduring classic, we suggest the available international version. Leon the Professional, International Edition, not in theaters, Discovery Through Rental. Find us on the web at IndieFilmMinute.com. Welcome back to the Reasonable Voices talk radio show. My guest today is Virginia State Senator George Lincoln Barker. We have been, well, we've been talking about, obviously, Virginians, uh, education, economy, transportation. Uh, the, the senator has been very heavily involved in all of that and, and rehabilitation and social services, etc. Very concerned and aware of and working on education, I think we can say from all angles, it is not just about uh, book learning and mathematics, and the senator knows that. It is about hunger. It's about seeing the whole person. I, it seems to me that's what you were saying, Senator. We have to address the entire human in order to um, to educate them and to prepare them for life and to, uh, to hand over to them our future. Is, is that too fine a point on it? You know, another aspect of education that uh, I hear about a great deal is there seems to be an rising, even epidemic levels in some places, of bullying. Uh, do you find any such issues as that uh, at a troubling level in the Commonwealth? Um, well, anytime there's bullying, obviously, it, it is troubling. Mm -hmm. That means there's somebody who's a victim of that. Um, and we clearly do have that. I think it... Um, eradicate it altogether, mm -hmm. but uh, one of the things I think that has been good is that uh, what I, I think is happening is that school systems all across the Commonwealth are recognizing that as a significant issue and are each developing and implementing their own programs for uh, how to deal with it, how to prevent it as best they can, and how to stop it when it does occur. And so I think there actually is a lot more attention on those types of things now than there were 10 or 15 years ago. Thank you for that. I was, if we could, uh, before we get to the issues of mental health and and uh, or healthcare in general, even, I just a bit of a, a geography lesson because I too have to remind myself of this. The Commonwealth of Virginia has a rather interesting shape to it, and and I alluded to in the first segment of you know Northern Virginia and Southern Virginia, West West Virginia. But there's this little strip of Virginia, southwestern Virginia, of the Commonwealth itself that's, that borders, is it, uh, does it go all the way out and, and uh, is sandwiched between Kentucky or Tennessee, or am I remembering incorrectly? Uh, you're remembering correctly, and, uh, that far tip of uh, southwest Virginia. Uh, Kentucky is to the north and uh, directly to the west, and Tennessee is to the south. And I think that's an important thing for those who... who who are trying to make one Virginia in every sense of the word. I'm married to a University of Virginia professor, 
and and she and I both being educators believe this, you, you always have to meet the child where they are, whatever age that is. If you're going to educate, you have to meet them where they are and bring them to where they need to be to be successful. I've had the supervisor of uh, Albemarle County uh, on the show, and she has said there are places where we're simply not connected to the Internet. And this is a real limitation, I think, and I love talking to people like you and and, uh, other teachers and other uh, public servants and lawmakers or whatever who are aware of these issues and are addressing them because they are all part of education. And, of course, transportation impacts on it and the general health of the Commonwealth. What do you think about the Internet connection and the Commonwealth in general? Are we making progress in getting every child connected? What do we do? Well, we're making some progress, but there's still a long ways to go. Um, and I, I can relate well to that far uh, tip of southwest Virginia, because when I was uh, young, I we lived in uh, East Tennessee, uh-huh. uh, not far from the Virginia border, and I went to, all the way through high school uh, in Knoxville then. Uh, after living huh? what we regard as a big city uh, in Tennessee. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I'm very familiar with a lot of the things uh, that, that occur in southwest Virginia. And we have large areas of southwest Virginia and some other rural areas across the, the Commonwealth where there is no uh, cable system operating, those types of things, or mm. if, if it is, it's a, dis- a long distance from where people live. Those types of things have significant impacts in that, in many cases, it limits the ability of families and children who need their education uh, to be able to access things. Uh, and what it also does is it makes it difficult to get uh, attract companies to that area if you're not mm. going to have a, a good internet connection. Yes. And so those types of things are significant and are part of what we need to continue to work on uh, to make sure that there are economic opportunities throughout the Commonwealth. Excellent. Well, uh, we all appreciate it, Senator, I assure you. I wonder if... Um, I want to switch to the issue of health, both physical, emotional, psychological, mental health. Uh, The Commonwealth of Virginia, like most places, we are not, uh, uh, we have not been spared uh, actions that, uh, I guess as I've said to people, the only time we seem to talk about mental health in the media is when we're talking about someone who has committed some sort of gun violence or other violence against another. But there is domestic violence and spousal abuse and rape and so forth. It is not just guns, but that it just seems to me that if the, with so many guns, and I come from a family who everybody had guns, and I shoot very well. I haven't owned a gun in a while, but I was a marksman in the U.S. Army and all that. But I'm, I'm just wondering, before we get to the mental health aspect and how that has kind of uh, had uh, uh, ripples throughout the country that are distressing. How about physical health? How about the Affordable Health Care Act? I know that I have uh, uh, folks on who work in social services and other in hospitals, and they tell me that if if you say to someone, and we are talking about the Commonwealth of Virginia now, if you say it's the Affordable Care Act, everybody's for it. But if you say it's Obamacare, (laughs) it's an entirely different picture. But my question is, how are we stacking up in the Commonwealth of Virginia with, well, one thing is always in the news, of course, is Governor McAuliffe trying to get Medicaid expansion, that there's a place to start, but health care in particular. What are your thoughts? What do we need to do? What can we do? Um, Well, I think, I mean, progress is being made. We're still not there by any 
any stretch of the imagination, but we are making progress in getting more people covered. Uh, two things that have happened uh, that are part of the Affordable Care Act that are being fully implemented in Virginia that are making a big difference. One is uh, having changes in terms of what the policies are for those people getting private insurance. Mm-hmm. Uh, going forward, all new plans that are put into place have to provide a comprehensive basic level of services so people don't end up having to pay huge amounts out of pocket Mm -hmm. uh, when they thought that they were going to be covered for a particular condition or illness. We also now have uh, a requirement that uh, the children of someone who has a family plan can have their children uh, covered under their family plan until Mm -hmm. the age of 26. Yes. Because what we were frequently seeing previously was that between the ages of 18 and 25, a lot of children uh, ended up off their parents' plan, but they still weren't working at the type of job where they had health insurance coverage. Mm -hmm. So that is uh, making, uh, those types of things are making a difference. And another thing that is making a big difference is uh, no longer uh, allowing insurance companies to disqualify people for uh, pre-existing conditions. Uh, what I can tell you is that some of the people, some people think that the insurance companies were um, should have been doing this all along. But the problem was hmm. that unless they were all doing it, uh, yes. no single plan no, could yes. be able to do those types of things without being basically without going bankrupt. Uh, the plans were not opposed to it. They just said, if you're going to do it, do it, but make sure we all have to do it, and then we're fine with it. Hmm. So that all of that has worked very well, and we've gotten a lot of additional people good coverage as a result of that. In addition, we have the marketplaces where if someone does not have coverage through their employer, uh, they can go to a single place and you can go sign up with uh, uh, people who do those things locally or you mm-hmm. can go on online and sign up. It covers people, uh, anybody can, can qualify for it, but people up to a fairly substantial income level may qualify for some federal assistance in paying their insurance premiums so they're not having to pay all of those. When we have actually been uh, one of the states that has had a, a very high percentage of people get coverage through those health insurance exchanges. I think it was 380,000 something people last year and um, numbers are going up again this year. Mm. So those types of things have worked very well and are bringing down the percent of the population that is uninsured. Um, and the one thing we haven't done yet is to fully uh, implement Medicaid expansion or something along that line that would pick up a lot of the lower income people who simply don't have the resources, even with substantial significant subsidies, to be able to get coverage through the uh, health insurance marketplace. 37 states, I think it's 30, 31 states now have uh, that type of plan in, in place. Uh, the federal government has been willing to work with states in terms of how to design and implement those plans. We proposed in 2014 in the Senate, uh, passed, uh, passed in, the, in the state Senate in Virginia, a plan that would uh, be a private uh, uh, insurance plan uh, marketed approach to it rather than through the, uh, just through the regular Medicaid program, hoping that that would help get people into using regular private insurance and mm-hmm. then when their income level was uh, significant enough, they could just keep those same plans. So I think there's, uh, you know, that was the type of approach that we took in 2014. Unfortunately, we did not get it through the House of Delegates, and so we still have a much higher percent of the population that's uninsured. Massachusetts, which uh, did this plan on its own long before there was any federal plan, and the federal plan is largely based on the Massachusetts plan, mm-hmm. that actually Mitt Romney uh, was governor of Massachusetts at the time and got implemented. They're now down to only 2% of their population that's uninsured. 98% of the people have health insurance coverage. In Virginia, we're still a little above 10%. Mm. So we're still double digits, about six times as high as what they are in Massachusetts. If we provide more coverage to people 
it will make a big difference in in terms of health insurance premiums will come down mm-hmm. because right now hospitals have to charge extra to those of us who are insured to cover the cost of the uninsured that, that they're taking care of. Uh, it will improve the Virginia's economy because it will get uh, more people getting the health insurance that they need. Mm-hmm. Uh, it will bring in back into Virginia a lot of uh, Virginia tax money that is now being paid to the federal government to help cover these costs in states, and we're taking advantage of it. So we're losing money uh, every day we don't implement this plan. And it will dramatically improve the health status of people who are at lower income levels. In this case, it's below 138% of the poverty level. What the studies consistently show is that people who are at lower income level have substantially uh, shorter life expectancy. Yes. Because they're not getting the preventive care, they're not getting early treatment of conditions, and often a condition they have, whether it's high blood pressure or diabetes or cancer or whatever, isn't, uh, isn't diagnosed until it's too late too, or yes. until there are major complications that lead to their premature death. So for a variety of reasons, we need to do it. What is uh, significant this year is that some of the concern that's been expressed in the past was that uh, eventually we're supposed to, each state is supposed to pay 10% of the cost of these expansions. Right now, the federal government is paying all of it. Mm. But eventually, we would go to 90% federal funding and 10% state funding. A calculation and an assessment done by an independent auditor uh, hired by uh, uh, Republicans in the legislature said that Virginia would actually come out ahead. Yes. Because even with paying the monies, we would be paying less than what we would be saving uh, by being able to eliminate a lot of things that we fully fund at the state level right now uh, for prenatal care and some mental health services and a bunch of things like that. So there are a lot of benefits to it, and hopefully we will move forward. This year, what's been significant is that the hospitals have said uh, tax us to be able to do this Medicaid expansion because we, it will be good, enough better for us in the long run and, and certainly provide benefits to everybody across the Commonwealth mm. to be able to uh, support it. And so they're saying that they're willing to pony up the money so that there does not have to be state general fund monies going to this. Uh, that takes away one of the major arguments that's been made, and I hope we will have a, uh, a, good, a better discussion on that, on that issue this year. Excellent. Tell me, that all sounds quite optimistic, but uh, but pragmatic as well. I appreciate your sharing that information with us. I, I want to get to, to mental health. I, uh, you and I have both been close to this, you serving with uh, Senator Creek Deeds, and um, I knowing uh, the news reporters who were uh, shot on live television. Um, this This connection... Well, I, I don't even want to just say connection because I think uh, I don't like mental health being singled out as even the primary cause for gun violence. I I know we do, you and I right now, do want to talk about mental health. I know we, need, we as, as legislators, as lawmakers, as the media, we must address this and educate the public. Uh, there's far too much gun violence in America to say it's all about somebody being mentally ill. So uh, it's it's a pet peeve of mine that the only time we really have a discussion in the media about mental health is is gun violence. But having made that point now twice, let me ask you: How are we doing? What has changed since um, uh, the tragedy of uh, Senator Creek Deed's family and involving? gun violence, and mental health? Well, there, are, there, there clearly has been some uh, significant progress made since uh, that tragedy back mm-hmm. in, in late 2013. We actually had already started 
after the Virginia Tech shootings in 2007, the legislature came in with a lot of additional money uh, in the budget in 2008 and a number of changes to the law to try to make sure that those people who had been uh, detained or committed and had a directive uh, to ensure that they got mental health treatment uh, received that treatment. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, that did not happen for the individual who did the, the shooting uh, at, at, at Blacksburg. Yes. Um, so well, what happened was that shortly after we made the first steps in um, dramatically increasing our spending on mental health services, we, the major recession of 2009, 2008, 2009 to 2010 hit. Mm-hmm. And so we lost a lot of that additional funding. Yes. What was particularly encouraging to me was that after our revenues began picking up, one of the first things that, um, that both the, the governor, was Governor McDonald at the time, and, and the General Assembly did was increase Mental services and build back what had been uh, cut over the previous two or three years. In 2014, shortly after the tragedy involving Senator Deeds and his son, mm-hmm. uh, one of the things we did was we uh, changed a number of laws, and we now have a system that operates so that anyone who needs to be um, detained or committed yes. uh, is able to get access to a bed. Yes. There's no one who was turned away because we haven't been able to find a bed. Exactly. That will make a big difference, and it's already producing benefits uh, because people know that they can count on uh, something being there when they, uh, when, they, uh, when they need it. One of the other things that we're looking at, and this the study commission that Senator Deidre's chair and that I serve on that you referred to, mm-hmm. is doing a four-year study of yes. our entire mental health system. And we're about halfway through it, but we have a long ways to go. And just to give you part of the indication of how all this plays out to the public in ways, even if an individual is not uh, directly affected by someone in his or her family mm-hmm. having mental health issues, a former, a former state senator uh, from uh, Virginia Beach, Ken Stiley, is now the sheriff down there. And uh, he's mm. pointed out that uh, he operates the largest mental health facility in Virginia. Wow. Because there are more people in his jail that have mental health yes. needs than there are at any private or state facility anywhere in the Commonwealth. Yeah. And one of the things that is encouraging is that the governor has proposed in his budget for that we'll consider next month to uh, add a substantial amount of money for funding of providing mental health services in the jails and doing the types of things that help those people get the, uh, the treatment they need. So we do all those types of things, and it can make a big difference, not only in terms of uh, productivity of citizens across the Commonwealth, but even in our uh, safety and protection and crime uh, crime rates, those types of things. Yes. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm glad you mentioned that because I I did a uh, cover story of um, uh, Senator Creek Deeds and the former uh, Commonwealth Attorney of Albemarle County, Denise Lunsford, and others who had gathered to talk about mental health and and the police and legal system dealing with mental health in prison. So thank you for mentioning that because I'd forgotten to ask that particular part of the uh, uh, the picture. But one last thing, we do need to go, but I am curious, don't mean to put you on the spot, but also something I forgot to, to think about before this is um, the Equal Rights Amendment. Now, we both know women who have are at the forefront of fighting for a specific constitutional amendment that gives uh, gender equality. We have a lot of, uh, you know, laws that have uh, let better and whatever that have come and done a piece of the problem. We know women have had the right to vote since the 1920s, but there is no specific uh, mention in the U.S. Constitution uh, that women are equal uh, to men in the law of the land. 
I understand that the Commonwealth of Virginia, we need three states to ratify. This amendment's been bouncing around the country since the 70s. What's happening in Richmond? Does uh, the Equal Rights Amendment ever even make it on the docket? Well, it makes it on the docket. Okay. Uh, and it has passed several times in the Senate in recent years. Yes. Past, sometimes we've been able to pass it. Actually, I would uh, put the resolution in on that a few years ago, uh, and it was the first time in uh, over the last 25 years or so mm-hmm. that a, a, an equal rights amendment uh, proposal had passed in a legislative body that was Republican-controlled. Yes. Uh, so that we did get, uh, it was all the Democrats voting for it and some of the Republicans supporting it at various times. I think there were eight different Republicans that supported it at one time or another there that helped us get it through then. But it does not, uh, it's not moving forward in the House yeah. of Delegates. And yes. There was very little change in composition in the House of Delegates this year. So that probably will not uh, uh, change the outcome this year. Hmm. Uh, it's an issue that a lot of us keep working on, trying to make sure that there's equal opportunity for everybody, uh, whether it's uh, women's rights or you know, people of lower income, people from different ethnic groups, et cetera. But uh, you know, unfortunately, I don't think that's likely to move forward in a substantial way. What is happening is that efforts are being put just to keep some focus and attention on it, even mm-hmm. if it's not going to be successful. And we may eventually get there. Whether getting three more states to pass would get it adopted into the U.S. Constitution is uh, is an unknown at this point. Yes. Uh, but it's not automatic that it would, and there are some who say that it would not take effect, but it'd have to be some type of determination made probably by the Supreme Court as to whether that would make it uh, the law of the, of the part of the Constitution. Well, thank you so much, Senator George Lincoln Barker. You are so uh, informative and such a great educator and lawmaker. And you are certainly on the right of all of the people all of the time. So I so greatly appreciate your being on the show. Is there any uh, any way that you, that you wish to have uh, the listeners be in touch? And how can they be supportive uh, or find out more? Website? What what would you like to share with us? Whatever you're comfortable. Well, I think what's important is for uh, you know people throughout the Commonwealth to make their voices heard. Uh, and to make sure that their voices are heard, particularly by their uh, individual legislators, their delegate and, and uh, senator. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I would certainly encourage everybody to uh, write letters. Uh, letters are very effective because uh, most people sort of moved away from letters to uh, email type of things now. Uh, so getting a letter in your hand uh, has, a, has an even greater impact, a much greater impact than just sending an email. That doesn't mean don't do emails if you don't have time to do the, the full letter, but uh, uh, the letters actually are very, very helpful there. And what's important is to present not only your point of view, but to also provide some of the rationale for it. And uh, uh, that's that's what really gets uh, the attention of the legislators. So I think that uh, just keep working on those types of things. Stay in touch with us as much as, as you can. Uh, phone calls can certainly be uh, made to the legislative offices, and particularly during the legislative session during the winter. Excellent. Thank you so much. Our guest today has been Virginia State Senator George Lincoln Barker. It's been an absolute pleasure having you on the show today, Senator. I wish you the happiest of holidays and a happy new year with a happy and productive General Assembly in January or in 2016. Thank you so much. Thank you. Bye now.
another film rental discovery. Welcome to the Indie Film Minute. We begin in the courtroom. Parents argue for custody of their daughter as mom wants to leave the country for a better future and dad must stay in place. An arbiter presides. There is no decision on this day and the family retreats to their apartment, civil in their discourse, but both firm in their intent. They had agreed that immigration would best serve the family. But now dad's father is sinking into Alzheimer's and needs his son's care. In this society, caring for one's father in need is an honor and a duty, not a choice. When mom moves out, dad must bring in help, a pregnant day nurse. An accident terminates her pregnancy and dad is charged with murder of the unborn child. As he defends himself, sometimes with lies that speak to the truth, the court, mom and daughter and we judge. A Separation is a complex story and a fine example of the long tradition of excellent filmmaking in Iran. It's Tehran setting, the influence of government, the omnipresent religious formalities, and the societal anomalies further escalate the tragic circumstances. Many call a separation with its subtle moral questions, captivating dramatic action, and unique view into an unfamiliar society the best film of the year. Maybe they're right. Indie Film Minute. Not in theaters. Discovery through rental. Welcome to the Reasonable Voices Talk Radio Show. Today we're discussing one of the greatest and arguably most surprising challenges to children in our country, hunger. I'm your host, Marcello Rolando, and the First Lady of Virginia, Dorothy McAuliffe, is here to share with us the important work of Virginia's No Kid Hungry program. Welcome, Ms. McAuliffe, and thank you for joining us, and introduce us, if you don't mind, with who you've invited to join you. Yes, hi. Uh, it, it's great to be here, Marcello. Thank you so much. And I also have with me here Eddie Oliver, who is with the No Kid Hungry Virginia campaign and who works in the governor's office with me here in e Richmond. Excellent. Thank you, and welcome to you, too. Um, oh, thank you, Pat. Uh, my pleasure. Is it true that one in six kids in Virginia struggle with hunger, I mean, especially in the summer months? Is that a real statistic? Absolutely. That is absolutely the real number, and that is 300,000 Virginia children who are food insecure every year in Virginia. And it is shocking to me, as it was to my husband when he was elected and, and began his administration, and actually during his campaign as we looked into the numbers to see if we were to win, what would the tools we would have available to us, learning that, that staggering number of children? As we know, and I know you agree, even one child going hungry in Virginia is not where we want to be as a commonwealth. Exactly. What constitutes a food insecure household? And uh, how, do we have any idea how many children live in, in food insecure households? Number is three hundred thousand, and that mm. is uh, that means that you don't have a reliable access to food for a consistent period of time every single year. And so, what we're trying to do with the No Kid Hungry campaign specifically is take advantage of existing federal feeding programs that are available to our children in need. The free and reduced lunch program, the, the national lunch program, has been in place since the nineteen forties, and Congress consistently has authorized spending to make sure we don't have hungry children. Mm in our schools, because school is the best place to reach children. Yes. Um, it's where we can reach most of them, and it's their best, uh, for, for many, many children, um, for all children, actually, it's their best opportunity for success and to grow and to thrive, and so we are trying to 
ensure that Virginia is, and our local schools are doing the best they can to leverage those feeding, federal feeding programs and those resources in their school districts with the breakfast program, the lunch program, the after-school programs that are available for our students. Excellent. I was wondering, you know, we, we of course, hunger is the, the worst thing, but when we, we need to think beyond that, I guess, and I, I know you have, how does it impact on a child's productivity in school? And, and a question I've been wondering about, does childhood hunger have any long-term effects? In other words, when you're an adult, are you still paying for the hunger you, you felt and experienced as a child? Well, I think that we know that that's true. We've we've met many adults along the way, many who work in our schools, actually. Mm. Um, I met a, a school principal and an assistant principal at, a, at an elementary school in Loudoun County who talked about the impact hunger had on their lives, their learning, their, their you know, just their whole well-being. And we know that children can't be ready to learn. Uh, we, they see conduct problems. They see tardiness, absentees, trips to the nurse all kinds of challenges that interfere with their learning every school day Mm. uh, for those children and families who are suffering from insecurity around food and and the anxiety and stress that that brings. And of course, we know that there are many challenges that, you know, children living in poverty face, and this is just one answer, but we think it's an important piece um, to their their ability to grow, their brain to develop, their ability for their, their minds and bodies to, to reach their, their full potential every day. Mm. We know that, you know, schools and principals make sure that on SOL day everyone gets breakfast, and we believe that that's important every day every of the year, day. so and mm. lead up to those test dates. And so that's why when we have only a 50% participation rate in our students who are eligible for free and reduced lunch, we know we we can do better. And so my office, and then partnering with the No Kids Hungry Campaign in Virginia, as well as business leaders, nonprofits in every region of the Commonwealth, we're all coming together to support schools to help them figure out how we can support them as they as they look for ways to change up their, their, school serve, their breakfast service models mm-hmm. to, to make sure more children are able to take advantage of those breakfasts um, at the start of the day. And as a simple act, of making that breakfast available after the school bell rings mm-hmm. really makes a big difference. Do you know, uh, uh, given the, the number of children who are eligible to receive free meals or at least reduced price meals, why does such a small percentage participate in school meal programs? Well, actually, the participation in school lunches is at a really a good number. Good. Uh, what we're working on specifically are the low numbers, the low percentage rates of participation in school breakfast. Summer meals and mm-hmm. uh, the summer meal. Well, I said school part breakfast participation is at just a little over fifty-one percent. Mm-hmm. In the summertime, that participation finding a, a, a summer meal. It's about thirteen percent of our kids who need one are mm-hmm. actually connecting with a summer meal. So we're working with libraries, nonprofits, as we said, in the communities to boys and girls mm-hmm. groups, yeah, church, faith-based groups that are helping to build access and availability for those summer meals, which is so important. If we can partner it with an academics during the summer, it's even better to, mm-hmm. to, to reduce that academic slide that happens over the summer months that all parents know about. If sure. you're not keeping uh, engaged with uh, enriching activities, 
then, you know, we do see the academic slide happen in the fall when they come back and they have to, you know, kind of go back and begin again. So summer feeding and, and enrichment activities for those kids that live at the poverty line are, are really super critically important. Marshall, I think we have time for one more question. Sure. Well, then, we know that the General Assembly has uh, passed a, a half-million-dollar budget amendment to support uh, the Commonwealth School breakfast expansion. What motivates them? If, is it a, a improvement in the children's scoring, test scoring, and fewer disciplinary issues? What can we show politicians uh, in particular and other organizations that, that this food program is working and is necessary. I guess that's kind of ties in with the Out of School Nutrition Summit you recently held. That's right. Well, thank you. That's a, that's a great question. So actually, hunger and food insecurity is a very bipartisan issue. And so when we went to the General Assembly to advocate for this additional money last year, $537,000 uh, last year that was approved in the governor's budget Working in a bipartisan way with members of the General Assembly, we were able to connect students in 206 schools and 26 divisions mm -hmm. with, you know, helping them switch up their breakfast service model. So I talk about this breakfast after the bell. So where yes. breakfast becomes actually part of the school day. And yes, they, whether it is just the idea of children being hungry in their districts, mm -hmm. which uh, really speaks powerfully to all our members of the General Assembly, but also looking at the data, which shows that if children start the day with breakfast, 17 and a half point percentage point improvements in math on standardized test scores, mm -hmm. and it decreased absentees, decreased tardiness. Um, as I mentioned, the conduct behaviors yes. are improved. Teachers, you know, will have the pain to testify about how they immediately see the class settle down in a different sort of way in the mornings when they have breakfast time together. And, every, and the teacher knows that everyone is starting off with a full stomach and ready to concentrate and learn and do their best. So we really saw the General Assembly come together in a bipartisan way mm -hmm. um, to support this amendment. And because there is such a need, we had to turn away through that. So that allowed for a grant application for our schools to switch up their breakfast model a little bit so they could do it after the school day. Excellent. And even though it's a federal reimbursement, we're talking about the business model of how do you serve breakfast in the classroom do you, or getting buying those, purchasing those kiosks or grab-and-go breakfast. Those little those costs that make a big difference to schools but don't require a lot of money invested by the state sure that more students are able to participate because the food itself is fully reimbursed by the federal government, as I said earlier. Mm -hmm. But we did find such success and unfortunately had to turn away about 300 schools. And so this year, the governor is announcing today, in fact, his budget. It's a very exciting budget. Uh, first time in Virginia history that we have a $100 billion budget, complete wow. budget. And uh, within that budget, he has uh, provided a million dollars um, so it increased by about a half of uh, 500,000 mm -hmm. um, this year to help improve access to school breakfast, to help schools absorb those costs that are involved in, in switching from before school to after the school day starts for the breakfast model to really make it part of the educational day. And we know mm -hmm. that it's a really important part of the day. It's important, I do believe, as a mother of five, as books and laptops and all the other uh, parts of um, supporting education that we believe good nutrition, um, access to quality meals um, is as important part of the day to the learning that goes on. 
how can those listening help uh, the No Kid Hungry Virginia campaign? Website, what do we do? Well, there is a website, and it is nokidhungry.org, Virginia. And, of course, that website, nokidhungry.org, Virginia, has a lot of facts, statistics, um, information about uh, what's happening in Virginia around school participation in, in meals. And, of course, donations and resources are always welcome and needed because it is like a, a ground campaign to... Uh, be able to market where our summer meals are, to provide non-state-funded grants as well to schools who are have a high need that don't have the budget in many ways to make sure that, you know, the costs associated with some of the feeding programs are, are put into place. And then, of course, just talking to, in your local school, you yes. know, parents talking to their their teachers, their administrators about how is how effective, how many kids are participating, what is the need, and even in even in schools with incredible resources, there will be in Fairfax County there are a 26 percent you know free and reduced lunch rate, and that's about 45 over 45 thousand children in Fairfax County alone. Wow. So um, you know that's it's a lot of children, and, lot. and as we said at the beginning, every single one is very important to all of us into our future. So please do. I hope your listeners will go to the website, learn more about No Kid Hungry and the No Kid Hungry campaign. And it is part of a national organization, Share Our Strength, which yes. has been involved with school feeding and hunger for about 30 years. So it's a, it's a great organization and one I'm very pleased to partner with here in Virginia. Marvelous. I wish you and, and the No Kid Hungry Virginia campaign all the very best, and I thank you so very much, First Lady of Virginia, Ms. Dorothy McAuliffe, for being on the show today. Thank you, Marcello. Have a wonderful holiday. You and, too. Uh, thank you for having me. Thank you. My pleasure. Bye now. We've been talking with the First Lady of Virginia, Ms. Dorothy McAuliffe, and we are certainly thankful that she was on the show and making us more aware of what our children need to live a happy, healthy, and productive life. Please support No Kid Hungry Virginia Campaign. I'm Marcello Rolando, the Reasonable Voice, thanking you for joining us in becoming one of the Reasonable Voices heard round the world. Thank you for continuing to listen to, support, and share the Reasonable Voice Blog Talk Radio with family and friends, especially online. We enjoy hearing from you, and in response, yes, we are now accepting new company and business advertisers and welcoming organizations seeking to be one of our sponsors. So please do continue to email us at thereasonablevoice at gmail.com. However, if you prefer to simply make a donation, your donations are greatly appreciated and can be made through PayPal by clicking on the donate button found at the top of the homepage of the Reasonable Voice. Thank you for joining us today to make every day as reasonable as possible. We hope you will download and share our downloadable podcasts. I'm Marcello Rolando, the Reasonable Voice, hoping you will become one of the reasonable voices heard round the world.
Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.